Hello, Nava family. Hope your new year is off to a great start. I'm here at my desk, looking out the window at a wintry wonderland, recording this message as an introduction to the Gospel of John. As a church, we've decided to dedicate ourselves to journeying through the good news of Jesus, the Word made flesh, and the Gospel of John. It's a story all about the one who made all things originally and is now making all things new. It's a marvelous renewal. I'm praying these are not just words on a page, but words that become flesh in our lives, living, transformative encounters with Jesus. I've always loved the Gospel of John. I think it's been my favorite. But in this current season, it's capturing my imagination in a whole new way. This phrase is going through my mind, the world's waiting for the word made flesh, waiting to see and hear and touch and experience Jesus formed as good news inside of us, the church. There's many everyday bruised and broken people we're going to meet in the gospel of John and each one of them encounters Jesus. And like them, I'm so aware of my own life that we need to meet Jesus afresh to see Jesus, to trust Jesus, to be transformed and renewed again. I am praying, Holy Spirit, would you renew us as we open these pages? May the pages become alive. Stephen Verney in his book, Water to Wine, summarizes the gospel beautifully saying, I invite you to explore John's gospel because John brings us to Jesus and to the mystery of his love. And Jesus brings us home to his Father and to what we most desire. And the Father brings us to the reality of ourselves and gives us to each other. What a beautiful invitation. I really do pray the Lord brings us to Jesus and Jesus to the Father and the Father to the reality of ourselves. Before we get going too far, uh, I want to give some context for this beautiful, ancient, beloved masterpiece known as the Gospel of John. Uh, The author, though maybe somewhat debated in history, seems pretty obvious. Uh, John. John's the beloved disciple, the one who was close to Jesus, the one who was in Jesus' inner circle, who had a front row seat for so many of Jesus' ministry moments and most intimate moments. Uh, John leaning over at the table at the Last Supper, having secrets with Jesus of who was going to betray or going with Jesus uh, with just a few of the friends into Gethsemane or being the one at the cross who was entrusted with the mother of Jesus. He understood himself as the one Jesus loved. He was deeply familiar with Jesus. But at the end of his life, he would write the revelation and describe the one he was familiar with all those years. He became utterly fascinated with. He fell as a dead man in the presence of Jesus, fully revealed in his glory. And for me, this is part of our journey, moving from familiar to fascinated. Holy Spirit, show us the one that we are so wonderfully familiar with. This is our tendency. And would you move us into fascination? A little about this gospel. Mark L. Strauss, professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary in San Diego, 
names this gospel the good news of the eternal Son sent to reveal the Father. I like to add, and renew creation. He goes on to say, while 90% of Mark's stories appear in either Matthew or Luke, those are known as the synoptic gospels, 90% of the fourth gospel is unique. One commentator calls John the Maverick Gospel, an appropriate designation for this singular book. It was so unique that 90% of it is unshared in the other Gospels, which is fascinating. Uh, How do we account for the differences? The likely answer is that John was written in a different context and at a different time than the Synoptics. Probably John was written near the end of the first century, again, somewhat debated, But it seems that John is addressing issues of importance and concern in the church of his day. The synoptics, likely written between the 50s and 70s in the first century, uh, were describing the burning issue for the church to show that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who was fulfilling the Old Testament promises. They were constantly asking the question, how has the kingdom of God arrived if Jesus was crucified and the Romans were still in power? Synoptics answer over and over, the kingdom came in a different way than they expected, and Jesus' messiahship was vindicated and confirmed through his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God. It seems John is writing somewhat later to a different context, and the church was confronting totally different challenges. It seems false teachers were arising in the church, and some were challenging the deity of Jesus saying he's not fully God, and others were challenging his true humanity, denying God could even become a human being. And this is what John seems to address right from the beginning, a fully God, fully human Jesus. John's gospel can be outlined into four parts. There's different ways to do it, but this is helpful for just thinking about as we're opening this up as our home churches. Part one is an introductory prologue that kind of sets the context of the overarching themes in the whole book centered on Jesus, this fully God, fully human, uh, one who has come to us. And then there's a main body broken into two parts. The first part is the book of signs, John 1, 19 through 12, 50. Those are miracles that point to and reveal who Jesus is. They're often connected to his teachings. And the second part of the main body is called the Book of Glory. John 13, 1 through 20, the end of chapter 20. It starts at a table with the disciples revealing the glory, uh, uh, Jesus revealing the glory of the Father. And then it's called that because glory is used over and over and over in reference to Jesus' death, his resurrection, his exaltation, continually Uh, being referred to as glorification. These things are bringing glory to God. They will restore the glory of the Son as it was before in the Incarnation. And then ultimately, they'll lead to the glorification and salvation of all who believe. So those are the main two parts of the body. And then the fourth part is a concluding epilogue. It reveals resurrection and ties up all the loose ends. In this gospel... God longs to meet the fullness of our humanity through the eternal Word who is fully human and fully God. All these questions are explored that at some point we ask in our life 
probably more truthfully, we ask them over and over questions about who God is and identity and truth and love and meaning and purpose. This maverick masterpiece leads us in to the mystery of those questions. And it starts in an incredible fashion with John 1, 1 through 18. It's known as the prologue. N.T. Wright, who's an incredible first century theologian and who our church will be using as commentary to uh, guide us through this year in our home churches, gives this beautiful metaphor about the Gospel of John. He says, Approaching John's Gospel is a bit like arriving at a grand, imposing house. Many Bible readers know that this Gospel is not quite like the others. They may have heard or begun to discover that it's got hidden depths of meaning. According to one well-known saying, the book is like a pool that's safe for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. But... Though it's imposing in its structure and ideas, it's not meant to scare you off. It makes you welcome. Indeed, millions have found that as they come closer to the book, the friend, above all friends, is coming out to meet them. Like many a grand house, the book has a driveway, bringing you off the main road, telling you something about the place you're getting to before you get there, a long, winding road, up to the mansion. These opening verses are, in fact, such a complete introduction to the book that by the time you get to the story, you know a good deal about what's coming and what it means. I love that metaphor of thinking about John as this mansion that we get to explore together. But the prologue, like a long winding driveway, is leading us up to the house, telling us so much about what we're about to read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look from this perspective Look even from the universe, the one who has made all things and created all things, this overview effect. When you go way, way out, it starts to change everything that you took for granted. And when you return back to what was familiar, it suddenly changed. As you read the verses, something that's almost impossible to miss Um, and certainly for the first hearers and readers in the first century, is the language of Genesis. It's just everywhere. There's echoes of the original writing of the New Testament that began everything. We hear it in all the words uh, from John 1. In the beginning, word, with God, all things were made, life, light, overcoming darkness, and even this word a little later on as you get down to verse 14, tabernacle. Why all this clear reference to Genesis, and what is the Spirit intending through the author? It seems that John is wanting us to see something, that the one who created everything in the beginning with his word, that brought forth light and life and human beings in the image of God, has now entered back into this creation, 
has come close in a way never seen before. And the word who made everything to start is now remaking everything. The word has become flesh. A new Adam, it seems, is here, but vastly different. Divine and human, eternal, now in time and space. God's Son walking in intimacy and authority to rescue and renew the whole world. We have a new creation, a new genesis, a renewal. If you get this, the whole gospel of John starts to open up. It's incredible. What will this renewal look like? Now, we want to look into John's kind of key words in the prologue. And three stand out to us. Behold, believe, and become. And the first holy invitation is to behold. Let's pay attention to this idea as we go through the rest of the year in John, where does it say to behold, to see? We're being invited to see, to behold God, but in a way we did not expect. Here's the reality. We cannot see unless there's light. And without light, there is no life. New creation life, renewal, will begin with God's own initiation He brings light into the world. That is the declaration. Light has come into the world. And light finally allows us to see, to behold God. God has come. And this light will allow us to see ourselves and other humans rightly. The true human, the true God is here. And finally we can see. Verse 14 of chapter 1 becomes like a crescendo verse and the key verse, potentially, of the entire gospel. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Or as Eugene Peterson famously coined in his translation, the message, has moved into the neighborhood. And the passage goes on to say, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, This is the ancient cry of Moses saying, show me your glory, crashing down through history, being fulfilled. Amazing. We have seen his glory, the one and only, this word made flesh. And apparently to see God in his glory, we will need to see the word made flesh. But it's not a given that we'll be able to see God. Earlier in the passage, verse 9 and 10, we're told that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What a painful reality. The Creator's here, in skin, apparently. And the world doesn't recognize him, and his own people, the Jewish people, can't receive him. The fact is we are all capable of this. Even, the pastor says, with this burning witness in the wilderness, John the Baptist crying out that the light has come. And he says, behold, there's that word again, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet with John as witness, as the creator coming to them, so many were blind or they chose not to receive. The big invitation in the opening of John, which we'll carry through the book, 
is to see God's glory in the Word made flesh. I want to give a little context for what the original audience may have heard uh, when they heard the Word made flesh. John is speaking to a Jewish and Gentile audience, and he's using punchy, provocative poetry to both relate to them, but incredibly he is challenging them. Pete Gregg has described it as first century punk rock theology. The choice of words is precise and deliberate. There's three distinctive words that are used. Word, flesh, dwell. All these words are packed with rich themes. I want to spend a couple minutes just unfolding some of the meaning of this eternal word who has always been with God and is God and now all of a sudden has entered into time and reality and become flesh. Let's start with the first word, word or logos. Logos was a word of real substance in John's day, translated in English, word. Biblically and culturally, it was loaded with meaning. In Greek philosophical thought, it carried the connotation of the big idea, the reason and wisdom behind all that exists. It's wild what John is doing here culturally. John's audacious claim that Jesus is the Logos, therefore, means he's arguing Jesus was the ultimate expression of reason in the universe. He's taking an intangible concept proposed by philosophers for centuries and making it a tangible reality, a person who can be touched and heard and seen. At the same time, John believes that Jesus was the personification of God's spoken word. That's the other way you can translate logos. Here, John's provoking now his Jewish readers. For the Jews, God's spoken word was fundamental to their existence. Everything that had come into being had come through God's word. For Jews, God's spoken word was one with God's own character. So John is claiming something glorious and at the same time slightly blasphemous. Jesus will be God's definitive word. When God wants to say something, it will look like Jesus. Now, the next word is flesh. The Greek word is sarx. It's the word John uses to describe how God literally enfleshed himself to humanity. It's a strong, almost crude word that stresses the reality of Christ's humanity, according to the NIV study notes. It is, I mean, are you catching this? The reason of the universe, the word that God made everything, is sarks, human. Translated in Latin, caro is where we get incarnation. The incarnation, therefore, literally means the enfleshment of God. Jesus is God in skin. This is wild what he's doing with words. Now, the last word, remember, we're looking at beholding God. The logos becomes flesh, sarks, and comes to dwell amongst us. In the original Greek, it's the word used for tabernacle or tent. John's sentence literally reads, The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus now is the localized hotspot of God's presence on earth and fundamental to the plot, therefore, going forward. The centering presence of God, Jesus Christ, the intersection between heaven and earth is now here with us. This is wild, brain-bending, offensive stuff, merging the lofty logic 
and reason of the universe with earthy stuff, flesh. I love the song by John Mark McMillan. It's called Has It Been You? These lyrics kind of bring forward for me the wonder of incarnation. It says, all this time has it been you. I concede eternity is pressing into time. Even the material, it hums with the divine. And I believe the miraculous mundane is still longing to be seen. What exactly is the wise logic of the universe that in fact created all things and is very God doing in dirty flesh? Throughout the gospel, we're called to behold the glory of God in Jesus. Behold is the word of this section. The invitation over and over is come and see. That's the invitation of John's gospel. The question is, will we have eyes to see glory in a way we've never expected? And we're going to see many who are blind find their sight. The prologue through the 18 verses keeps building and building with this mounting intrigue around this character, the Word. Who is this mysterious Word person? The one who's in the beginning with God, who is God, creator, light, life, now in flesh, dwelling with us. Offensive to the Greeks, offensive to the Jews, John is doing something wild. Verse 14 goes on to say, when we see his glory, it is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are going to weave themselves through this glory through John's gospel. Grace at a wedding, truth at the temple in chapter 2, grace to a woman at the well, and then truth about her life that's destroying her in chapter 4, grace in the healing of a man with disability at the pool of Bethesda, and then Jesus warning him to, with truth to sin no more. Grace and truth, the glory of beholding the Word made flesh. And then in verse 17, we're finally told that His name, the Word, who is from the beginning, the Word who's been made flesh, is Jesus Christ. You can only imagine that guy, the Jews would think, the one who was crucified in Jerusalem. This is radical. But the vision gets more grand. We're told that seeing Jesus is actually a perfect vision of God. Finally, we see God. John 1.18 says it like this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That word known is where we get the word exegesis from. It's a critical explanation of a text. Amazing. Jesus has come as the perfect vision of God. And when we see God, we finally know who He is He is Father. He has made Him known. Amazingly, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus, the exegesis, explaining God. Eugene Peterson translates John 1.18 this way, This one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made Him plain as day. Know is what God desires, that we would know Him. The same word used for intimacy between a husband and a wife is God's desire that we would see and know in union who God is, and we cannot unless we see Jesus. That is what we are beholding. There is no greater gift 
that can be given than to see and know God. And what we know of God is a fraction of God. Nava, we will spend eternity unfolding God. God has fully revealed himself in Jesus as Father. There's an invitation in this season, in this journey through John, to see and know God. Jesus will reveal himself through the whole gospel in these seven I am statements. In fact, we're going to be preaching through these up through each month in our gatherings to August. I am statements like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep or the good shepherd, the resurrection, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Oh, that we could move from familiar to fascinated again. Transformation begins with seeing Jesus afresh. How are you being invited to behold Jesus again this year? How are you being invited to move from familiar to fascinated? Let's look for how he's revealing himself to us in the Gospel of John and in our lives. The next kind of key theme that the prologue draws out is this word believe. In fact, you could say that in beholding Jesus, the goal would be to believe. It is the summary verse of the entire book of John, which is John 20, verse 30, that says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have a life in his name. There's also not only seven I am statements, but these seven signs. These are miracles that point to and reveal who Jesus is. They have a deeper meaning, and they're often connected to teachings that he will give. Now, this word belief uh, in the Greek carries the connotation of deep trust and confidence. It means to believe or entrust or have confidence in something. Now, there's a big difference between mental agreement with an idea about Jesus and placing our actual confidence and trust in Jesus personally. That is what biblical belief means. Uh, in November, I went with three of my closest friends on a backpacking journey through Kruger National Park in South Africa. It is a park bigger than the state of Connecticut, and uh, lots of amazing but dangerous animals live there, <laughs> some that wouldn't mind uh, eating me. And so, namely lions, hyenas, leopards, crocodiles. Uh, I, with Julie being from South Africa, I had driven through parks like this on several occasions, but never had it crossed my mind to actually get out of the vehicle that was delightfully safe. Uh, but my buddy wanted to walk and camp there for three days with wild beasts. <laughs> we drove 30 minutes out from camp into the bush, and then came the moment of truth, getting out of the safe truck with a few of my friends and our two uh, armed guides. Thank you, Lord, for them. Uh, belief began as I watched that truck pull away, and there was no uh, backup plan. <laughs> At that point, there was a distinction between uh, a belief about a mental agreement and real trust. I had to trust the guide to lead me where I had never been before. It was no longer an idea, but a, a reality. 
We had some crazy adventures on that trip for three days. I wish I had more time to talk about them, but they all required trust in our guides to keep us alive. There was 120 degrees. It was miserable. Um, We didn't know where to find water, so we had to dry in uh, dig and dry riverbeds and find water. We had encounters with some massive dangerous animals and a pack of wild dogs, and we basically had to follow closely the entire time. When that vehicle rolled away, it was real trust. I had to put my confidence in a guide. This is what belief is about. And in this belief is life. Jesus is our guide to true life. In John, we meet the Word made flesh. And there's an encounter and we behold Him and we see Him. But will we trust Him? Uh, We may think we know how to live, but John calls us to entrust ourselves to this guide, Jesus, in the wilderness of life, not doing our own thing, trusting his way every step for how to live. Where do we find the water of life? Where is the danger? What does it mean to be human? This is belief in John, and pretty much we're looking through this as we go through almost every story in John reveals a person deciding to either trust and put their trust in Jesus personally or not. Belief isn't a once-off experience, but this ongoing relational journey with all kinds of twists and turns. Remember verse uh, 30 of chapter 20, that by believing you may have a life in His name. Our continual choice to trust is the fountainhead of true life. Going into 2024, where are you being challenged to trust Jesus? That is where the true life of God will be born in you. This is the decision everyone has to make in John, and I believe it is the call going into a wild political year with the world shaking. When so many things are uncertain, will we be certain in Jesus? Will we put our confident trust in Jesus? What is the growing edge of your life where you're being invited to do that? The final word is become. Uh, It's the word that I want us to consider in the prologue. It, it, It really stands out, this word become. And becoming is really the fruit of beholding Jesus and putting our trust or believing in Jesus. Verse 12 says, but all who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a few examples of transformative becoming in John. The word becomes flesh, water becomes wine, people become born again, a drink becomes a spring of living water inside of someone, a a little boy's lunch becomes a feast for thousands, Jesus' earthly body becomes a resurrected body. And all who receive become children of God. Renewal is all the way through John. It is a new creation. People beholding this presence of Jesus, this word made flesh, trusting in him, and then being transformed. You see Nathaniel transformed, a servant at a wedding uh, met Nicodemus, a woman at a well, a paralytic by a pool, a little boy with his lunch, as we said, the disciples over and over, a man bored blind. Renewal is the result of meeting him and trusting him. It's a new beginning where you're stuck. It's a reborn soul when you feel dead. It's a rising river of renewal and refreshing in a dry wilderness. It's a hopeful wind of change and impossibility. It's awakened heart from a long sleep. It's eyes open wide where you've lost vision. 
It's his peace meeting you where you're in pain. It's marginalized souls suddenly re-included into God's loving belonging. It's present companionship where you feel alone. It's sensing your value where you feel you've lost it. It looks like Father's love meeting you in the middle of your mess in your humanity through his faithful kindness, through this human God Jesus, his divine humanity, meeting your humanity, holding you, healing you, redeeming you, making you beautiful. There's an invitation to behold and believe and experience Jesus, vulnerably trusting him, knowing him, and becoming. My sense, family, is that Jesus is inviting us to behold him afresh and trust him that something new may be happening in our becoming. I had a really hard 2023 um, on so many levels. Uh, there was pain. There was multifaceted pressing, some deep relational pain, perplexing circumstances. Um, I'm not alone in that. I know I'm just one. But there's this quote that really impacted me. It comes from Paula Darcy. It says, God comes disguised as your life. I felt through this, there was an invitation to meet God in a way I did not want to meet Him. I realized one day walking on a beach deep into uh, my humanity just coming unraveled and uh, pain in my heart, I was walking there and I had a sense that Jesus just said, Adam, I, I'm not going to take away this pain, but I will carry you. Now, honestly, I just had a moment of just, I'm just mad at you. I don't want to be in pain. Other people can sit with me in this, but I want you to do something about it. I don't want your compassion. (laughs) And as I said that, I realized I had a big problem with compassion. But Jesus, Jesus wanted to sit with me in the pain. He has been sitting with me in the pain, holding me and healing me. And something began to happen. I had to entrust myself, not to him fixing me, but being with me. And over these months, I started to feel and experience something happening in me, just a a little bit more co-suffering with others, uh, an ability to have compassion where I did not have it. And it happened through beholding Him in compassion to me, actually trusting my pain to Him and starting to see the fruit of me becoming a person who can be with others in pain. Uh, The same uh, author, spiritual director in her book, New Set of Eyes, Encountering the Hidden God, Paula Darcy says this, and this just blows me away. She said, I resist my own awakening. I push hard against that for which I am most deeply long. I sense deep within that there is more, more to know, more to experience, more reality than my careful definitions of God. I intuit larger places and a greater meaning to being born again than only the ascent of the heart. But when the invitation comes to step past comfortable conclusions, my usual response is not to run towards this newness, but instead to be afraid. In fact, to cling even harder to the ideas that keep God a careful object of study, not a subject who will totally change the way I experience my life. Jesus, I believe, is asking, where do you want me to bring renewal in you? 
where do you want me to bring renewal in you? And where do you want me to bring renewal through you? That will require us not going through the Gospel of John as a careful study, an object of our study, but as a person, a God-made flesh who we encounter. John is welcoming us to behold Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to be transformed by Jesus, becoming something new. I believe that John welcomes us to radical renewal, not just for us, but through us. There are people in our city who need Jesus. To come back to the house metaphor at the beginning, the N.T. Wright said, we're coming up this winding driveway of the prologue, and we've seen these words, behold, believe, become, the word made flesh. And one walks out to greet us and welcomes us to the doorway of the house. And as we're coming in to this elaborate mansion, he looks at us with a smile and says, you're not just visiting or touring this house. This whole gospel is this that I have come to give you a father, and this house is the father, and his family lives in it, and you're not just here as a guest. You have the right to have this house, to live in this house. And in fact, when we get farther in John, that is exactly what we are going to find. Come home to the father and his family. I want to come back to that original quote, so I invite you to explore John's gospel because John brings us to Jesus and to the mystery of his love. And Jesus brings us home to the Father and to what we most desire. And the Father brings us to the reality of ourselves and gives us to each other. Father, I pray that this year, as we go through the gospel of John, these would not just be words on a page, but encounter with the living word made flesh, encounter that will change us radically from the inside and that bruised and broken places will be healed by you and your renewal will happen in us and through us for the world is waiting for the word made flesh. Amen. Love you, Nava Church. What a journey we have ahead.